Welcome to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast with Ian and Johnny. Discussing our passions of sport, OCR, running, and fitness to help you perfect your craft. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast. Before we get started on this week's episode, we want to shout out our partners, Red Dot Running Company. They are the go-to store for all your running, trail, and sports nutrition needs in Singapore. Red Dot are passionate about sourcing the best brands worldwide. We are proud to be associated with a company we love and are also focused on helping athletes perfect their craft and unlock their athletic potential. Red Dot, thank you for partnering with us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Unlocking Athletic Potential podcast, where we speak to athletes, coaches and industry experts to try to uncover the secrets to their success. Our why? is to inspire everyone out there to pursue their sporting passion and be better at their athletic pursuits. I'm Ian Deef, and as a 41-year-old, today's guest is someone I am very keen to talk to. He is one of the world's leading Masters athletes, and in 2018, he held the fastest time in the world, over 400 metres for anyone over the age of 40, clocking 49.68 seconds, which helped him become the world master's champion against a stacked field, which included 400 meter 2010 Commonwealth champion, Mark Mutai from Kenya. Now, as we get older, there's going to be an age when we reach our peak. And this is especially true for those more explosive short duration athletes who sprint, for example. But what happens if these athletes do want to continue pursuing their passions into their senior years? And is it possible to rewind the years and run a PB in your 40s. Where does this motivation come from for Masters athletes? We are going to find out all of this and more with our guest today, Gavin Stevens. Gavin, welcome to the pod. Ian, lovely intro. Really enjoyed that and uh, lovely to chat. We've got a lot of history, haven't we? Training we together, have. training partners. We haven't caught up for a while, so it's uh, lovely to be invited. It's going to be a great chat. The last time I saw Gavin, he turned up on my doorstep in Malaysia 12 years ago, <laughs> completely out of the blue. He didn't even let me know he was coming to the country. He gave me a call, <laughs> and uh, 24 hours later, we were uh, training as we were back in the day. So just, I guess, to add some more context to today's conversation as well, myself and Gavin are former training partners, and Gavin, in his earlier years, was a phenomenal athlete. He won the British University's indoor title over 200 metres, in 2001 and was a regular on the podium for relays at British University events as well. So Gav, I guess let's just take it right from the very beginning. Let's let's listen to your discovery into athletics for the first time in your younger years and then this reintroduction to athletics as a, a master's athlete. Okay, let's uh, go right back to the sort of start. Again, with sort of a multi-sport background and typical sort of British sports, cricket, football, rugby. They're the sort of sports that a lot of us get involved in at younger age at school. Very lucky to um, go to a well-known sports school in the UK, Millfield School. Long history of sort of producing athletes. I think it has produced the most Olympians out out of any school in the UK. At that time, athletics in the UK, being a summer sport, it's not actually something that you get involved in much in your sort of uh, school years. It's more sort of outside of school and the clubs where you actually sort of receive the sort of coaching for athletics. Even though I was at, you know, quite a uh, renowned sports school, I wouldn't say I received much um, much specific athletic sort of training at that stage in my life. Skill set, learning a sort of broad skill set across those team sports was something that was great and set me up for uh, sort of future success in a variety of sports. 
Yeah. But quite interestingly, even though I was at a strong sports school, the sort of focus wasn't necessarily on athletic training and improving sort of dynamic movements and things, something that's so common now in team sports. It was more, you go out onto the field and, and you play football, you go out into the field, you play cricket, you go out to the field and you play rugby. And um, Traditional games almost, right? Yeah, it was. It was. I sort of look back over my influences sort of through my teenage years. It wasn't really until I um, went to university and started training with yourself, started receiving coaching influence from, I know you've talked about him quite a lot in your podcast, a chap called Paul Lyland, the amount of influence he sort of had over your training. That's quite late in the day for me, sort of age 19, 20, when I went to uni and suddenly my eyes were open to sort of this this side of training, you know, the, the importance of sort of specific strength and conditioning training and performance training and how much that could influence your sports performance and sort of open my eyes really and improve my performance so significantly, so significantly over that sort of couple of years. Yeah, you probably picked up quite obviously a lot of fitness and even though there wasn't dedicated athletic sessions per se, through yeah. a multi-sports games approach, you were obviously getting yourself fit there was obviously some identification there from yourself maybe from your peers maybe from your coaches that you were a fast runner and then obviously moving to London going to Brunel University coming along with Paul Ireland's coaching setup um, that kind of almost brought together your athletic well it took your athletic ability and, and put it in a very specific context and I guess for our listeners we should just mention about Paul Ireland so Paul was a, a graduate from Brunel University with a master's degree in sports science he was a former Great Britain international bobslayer that had an unrelentless passion for athletics he absolutely loved it he was a teacher and he was in charge of the Middlesex athletics team. And with this training group that we had, he would pick up the fastest boys from the London area, bring them to our group and train them to win English schools titles. And just to kind of name drop one of the, the premier athletes he brought along, he, he picked up a guy called Lawrence Ober, who was an English schools champion, went on to place fifth in the final of the world juniors, knocking Usain Bolt out of the semi-final. And then went on to win medals at um, under 20 level for in the Europeans, I think a gold medal in the relay and was a very successful, if not one of our most successful junior athletes. So that was kind of the quality and caliber of some of the athletes that were part of our group, right, Gav? What an athlete, Lawrence Obi. Unbelievable. What a privilege to, uh, to do a few sessions with him back in the day. And uh, yep. what a talent. Yeah, that influence of being being around athletes like that, and, uh, Paul Island's sort of passion for for improving improving people's athletic ability, whatever talent you brought to the table. I mean, I came came to uni probably a twenty three second two hundred meter runner, so relatively quick, nothing particularly uh, groundbreaking. And he took me to sort of regularly running mid twenty ones and uh, taking my four hundred meter time, you know, knocking seconds off sprint times, which is unheard of really especially you know maybe it's yeah. it's common at those sort of younger teenage years but when you're approaching your 20s to suddenly be improving by seconds each season and suddenly winning british university championships and uh, making podiums and um, it shows that influence correct and really uh, directed sports performance training can have on excelling performance everybody that came into that group environment just excelled under his training a lot of focus on high quality sessions even though there's more of a focus now on recovery, we did have those easier days and it was all about giving your all in, on those those high intensity days, but taking time to relax and, and, and switch off as well. And 
he was just, as I say, this, his passion for athletics just drove this program and made it an incredible environment to be in. So obviously during that time, you had some success, smashing your PBs, winning a British University's sprint title. You were doing all right over the long jump as well, although I know the sprints were very much your passion. And then Paul moved to a different area. I moved back to Southampton and joined Todd Bennett's setup. I can't actually remember what happened to you after you left uni. Did you, did you carry on or, or what was what happened after that? That sort of period ending uni, the lifestyle change, I think it's a lot of people really struggle with those years. Their setup changes, their coaching group changes, the harsh realities of paying the bills starts to become even more significant. Yep. I stopped living in London, a bit like yourself. So my coaching and facilities that I was using significant change, you know, huge changes to your lifestyle. Yeah. I returned back down to the South Coast, a bit like you, just along the coast from Brighton. My athletics kind of pretty much stopped. I actually, in my final year of uni, a lot of my um, sort of friends were involved in the rugby setup at Brunel, which was a huge, huge sport at the uni. Massive, yeah. And I started floating around those sort of scenes quite a lot. Was given the opportunity to play semi-professional rugby. Seized that opportunity. It was exciting. You know, to suddenly be in that setup, trying something new. So moved into that as a sport and absolutely loved it. Playing for Worthing about sort of my twenties, really up up until early thirties. I was playing semi professional rugby. I'm, I'm guessing that's on the wing, Gavin, right? Yeah, I found myself on the wing. But uh, going back to sort of skill set I learned at school and the importance of that sort of broad skill set. I played a lot of rugby at school, not at particularly high level because I was quite sort of small for my age. Learning that skill set meant. And I did move over to rugby, which a lot of athletes do. You know, I wasn't just the fast guy on the wing. You know, I had a decent skill set to bring to the table as well. So um, so that was helpful. Yes, is there a bit of me that thinks I lost those key athletic years to excel and pursue my athletics perhaps, but uh, I probably wouldn't change that move into a different sport because I absolutely loved it. You know, I wouldn't change it. And, um, you know, it's a really, really enjoyable part of my life playing that sort of what you would think is your um, your key performance years in your sort of mid to late 20s. Actually went to a sport that I probably wouldn't wouldn't have expected, actually. Yeah, this journey that we go on through life and myself, yourself, athletics, yeah. sport is always going to be a part of that. I think it's just built within us. I think some people realise that they haven't unlocked their athletic potential maybe in one particular discipline, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't lived your happiest life you know, you've maybe, if you had stayed with the athletics, you could have maybe shaven off, you know, some temps, maybe had some more success on the track. Whether you would have reached, you know, the highest levels, you, you maybe can come back to that. But what actually did happen is you found happiness and success in a different athletic discipline that possibly would have made you happy, happier than if you carried on with the athletic journey. So it's not always about unlocking your athletic potential. It is sometimes actually about finding the way to unlock your happiness, your true happiness. And you'll never know that unless you, you live infinite Absolutely. lives, right? But it sounds like you definitely made the right choice there. Yeah, it's an interesting one on the talent and the ability you're given and have you fully unlocked that potential. I've, I always feel I'm, I'm quite an honest athlete with my sort of talent assessment, but also sort of hand in hand with that. And I find that with my coaching at the moment, you never want to set li set limits on... On people's potential so whilst you want to be realistic and uh, on your goal setting it's important not not to sort of limit that potential by saying right this person has got this amount of talent and i'm kind of i look back on my on my path and 
And did I reach my full potential? No. Was I close to it? Probably. Could I have got down to, you know, we, we both know that to make a living in athletics is incredibly difficult. And there's only a handful of people in the country who achieve it as a career. So when those years come where you, you sort of have to start paying the bills and you have to start making the decision, life decisions, you have to be realistic on your, your talent set and think, if I put another couple of years into this, will I reach that level? And I, I think, you know, I've heard a few of your guests talk about their talents and achieving that talent and, and being realistic. And you have to make those decisions. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult decisions because we all love prioritizing sport and dedicating our full life to it but you know those other life influences sometimes uh decisions have to be made yeah absolutely it's, it's always that question you know we, we talk about unlocking the athletic potential we will never ever know what our yeah. full athletic potential is and we will never ever reach it because there's always something we can do to improve and it's, it's very much that process that journey of, of trying to get there and i reflect back and I'm proud of the effort and, and what I gave to the sport in terms of trying to be the very best I could. I feel, again, just assessing myself, looking back, I gave it a, a really good shot. But realistically, to have, have made a living out of it, I would have needed to knock another two and a half seconds off my, my 400 metre time and consistently held it there. And having trained with world-class athletes such as Lawrence Obo, Rob Tobin, etc., I, I think that window for me had expired by the time I, I, I finished university when I got myself obviously in debt trying to push towards the Commonwealth Games and whatever else. And again, there was a little bit of luck on my side with my internationals and whatnot, being in a smaller pool with Scotland. Looking back on the journey, we had so much fun. And I look back on those training years and it's not just the competitions, it was the fun we had in places like Monte Gordo, Tenerife, and just the whole journey was just amazing. And yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. That enjoyment that we had of looking forward to sessions and you know, looking forward to going to the gym, looking forward to getting out on the track. I think that uh, was so significant back then. And it's something that stuck with me till now. You know, I still yep. love, I love going to the track. I love going to the gym. I love training. I love that feeling of training. And, and perhaps if it hadn't been such an enjoyable experience back in those years when we were training together, I might have drifted away from it and it might, might not have been something that I'd thrive on now. Rugby journey came to an end. What age are we talking now, Gav? Yeah, so it came to an end about 31. Mainly the reasons behind that were you're only one game away from sort of a life-changing injury in rugby. Yeah. And I enjoy sort of physical activity so much. It did, I've always, uh, always had a degree of concern that you know what sort of state of uh, state of mind would I be in if it, if it suddenly was taken away by a significant injury? It does scare me. With rugby, you know, it's a brutal contact sport, and uh, as you're getting older, those knocks feel feel, feel harder. And uh, you know, you're waking up the day after games, and it's harder to recover from them. From them, and you know, I had to make that decision: do I want to continue pursuing it? I was on the cusp of um, of uh, staying first team at that time. So again, made the decision that, okay, it's time to stop now and see what other other things I can pursue. Decision basically based on long-term health, really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. You know, there's a lot of people whose who's only passion is rugby. You know, it's, it's, um, it's one of those sports where people are incredibly passionate about it. I loved it, but I did have other pursuits that I enjoyed doing. You have some people who continue to play all the way through their 30s, 40s and you know, there's some people still turning out 50s and 60s to play rugby uh, because they love it. Yeah, um, and power to them if that's their passion, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I made the decision not to, and it was probably the right decision because if I had received that sort of life-changing injury in my early 30s, it, it certainly would have put a big hold to a lot of other things that I've enjoyed doing over the last 10 years. The kind of reintroduction back into athletics, how did that come about? What ages are we talking now for that? I sort of drifted um, for a couple of years and just enjoyed being active. I was enjoying um, doing some longer distance running. I started floating around my running club again and just going out with the road runners. Set a few goals with sort of 5Ks and 10K times yep. and enjoyed it, you know, just enjoyed being active. And that's sort of how I got involved back in running and the club. And then at the time, the sprint coach was moving away from the area and there was a group of sprinters who were who were looking to be coached. And uh, I sort of had a, had a bit of time to devote to it. So I said, OK, let's uh, let's see if I can get involved in this and give a bit of my time. Found myself spending more and more time at the track. And then I started doing a few sessions back on the track myself. And uh, there was quite a few masters athletes at the track at that time. They sort of said, you know, have you thought about getting involved properly in athletics? There's a bit, quite a big master scene. I wasn't aware really of the master scene that was involved in athletics. Just wasn't aware. Masters is, is over 35. It starts right? over 35. Yeah. yeah. So at this sort of age, I was getting close to that, you know, 34. I started doing more track based sessions. Went to my first championship. I think it was either age 35 or just might have been just 36. It was an indoor competition in Budapest in Hungary. So Europeans masters. It's world masters. World masters, I guess. Yeah. So straight in at the deep end. Went to this uh, competition, not really knowing what to expect. Had probably a about eight to ten months of of track based training back in the locker. Went to this competition from a performance point of view. I did all right. I made the semi-final of the 200, got a place in the 4x2 relay team, and we actually won the gold in the 4x2 relay, which was brilliant. Nice. Yeah, and just absolutely loved the experience. You know, suddenly I didn't have massive opportunity as a senior athlete to represent my country. You know, I reached a fairly decent level for British universities, but that sort of international aspect, I'd never really tasted that as a senior athlete, and suddenly to be lining up against Americans, against Germans, against you know, these international athletes and representing your country. As quite a sort of patriotic guy, it was a massive, I sort of thrived on it. And I thought, yeah, I could get into this. And went away from that chance. I got to see a beautiful city, Budapest. Got to meet all these um, all these guys with, with similar sort of interests as myself. It was great to just spend a whole day watching athletics. You know, I could watch athletics all day. Yeah, it's what I enjoy doing, and and to share that sort of experience with similar people. Yeah, I I know when certainly you're part of the group, you definitely paid more of an interest in terms of the actual events that are on TV and around the world. I think certainly for me, I I just came into the sport not really knowing anything about athletics, purely just from a, a football background and having not really watched any athletics on TV. Where for you. That was one of the things I, I remember. You knew who, who the athletes were, the British history of how we'd done in track and field. And that was certainly something that was very evident and your passion, not just for competing, but for the actual sport in, in, as a whole as well. I've just found myself immersed in athletics, really from the age of about eight or nine, when I first started getting my taste of cross country and my family's been heavily involved, involved in running. So that sort of influence from a young age and just being around an athletics club it's sort of carried through my whole life. You know, I could, I'm just a massive fan of athletics and not just the actual sport, 
more about how athletic training can be applied sort of across across all sports and is becoming yep. more and more common across all sports you know that interests me to see you know from a, a local level at my club so i guess so many so much interest of from football clubs from rugby clubs from cricket you know these people who want to improve their speed want to improve their athletic ability because because yep. they they see how it can improve their performance across the board you know that does interest me from from a coaching perspective, as well as, you know, actual specific for athletics as a sport. Let's take it to 2018. And you're now competing in the over 40 age group. You're going to the World Championships. I'd love to just hear about the build up to that event, some of the key sessions that you did and the actual championship itself and, and, and winning that Masters title. Yeah, so it was quite a long build up to that 2018 championship. And um, so that was age... 41, 40, I was just 42. It was actually my birthday was um, on the September birthday. My um, birthday was on the semi-final day. So you, you had heat semi-final and a final? Yeah, heat semi-final, final. So I'll yeah. come to sort of the championship structure in a bit, but yeah. um, that sort of build up to, to winning the world champs in 2018, it was a long process. From drifting away from the sport for a decade, basically, to get quick again took a long time. I actually improved every year from age 35 and i still am improving so every year for the last seven years i've got quicker wow. which is quite rare and it's probably because i had that long time away from the sport so i found each year building up to 2018 you know suddenly i was making finals i was starting to get close to podiums i had a good run in for that championship of being injury free which is so significant for masters athletes. And uh, if you can get a good run in of 12 to 18 months of a great block of training where you haven't picked up any niggles, which have limited your training, it's so significant when you get to the start line at championships, particularly when you've got to go through rounds. And I actually entered the 200 and the 400. That's six sprint races in the space of a short space of time. And then you've got relays on the top of that as well. So a lot of athletes do break down the championships just because of that, that amount of that volume yeah. of races is a lot, particularly for a masters athlete. So I probably went into the went into the championships feeling confident that I was in a good place. Was I an underdog? Probably. You know, when you had quality athletes like uh, Mark Mutai, you know, Commonwealth gold medalist in 2010. You know, this guy's run 45 seconds, significantly faster than I've ever run. Yeah. Probably out and out favourite. A lot of other guys, you know, in the, in the bracket of, of half a second going into the champs. So it really was very competitive. The actual performance on the day, if I look at the championship, and I actually learned at the championship, well, the 200 was the first event. I ran season's best in the heat. Probably uh, not a wise thing to do, uh, but I was so excited. When you're in shape, you're so excited to run. And I got out there and I was, uh, I'd lane one. I probably ran, I ran the the bend pretty much 100% eased off and I ran a season's best. I, I'm trying to remember the time I ran, but I think it was about 22.5, 22.6 in the heat. Wow. Surprised myself, you know, you don't really want to be going that quick in the heat. But I did have a quick guy out in lane eight who was in my vision. Um, so I was thinking, you, you want to run for lanes. I wanted to win the heat. Probably ran about half a second quicker than I, I should have. You know, that puts fatigue in your legs. But it's exciting to run that fast and then, Ran quick in the semi for the 200. Again, 
probably a little bit quicker than I wanted to. And then the difficulty with the championships is you run the semi and quite often you have to run quick in the semi and then two hours later, you've got to perform again in the final. So were um, these 200s all on the same day, Gav? No. So he, the heat, then it was a day off. And then I, if I remember correctly, the semi-final and the final is in the space of a few hours on the same day. Okay. Which is a very hard thing for sprinters to get up for to perform for for two races in that in that short shorter sort of time frame. Yep. Hundred meters may be more achievable, but two hundred puts quite a lot of fatigue in your legs. And uh, I ran quick in the semi, probably quicker than I needed to, and actually didn't perform as well as I'd hoped in the two hundred meter final. I came third in the two hundred. Probably everyone was looking after my performances in the heat and semi. Was probably favourite going into the final. It was a blanket finish and I just got dipped out. actually lost my stride about 10 metres from the line and a couple of guys was leading, I think, probably with 10 metres to go. Lost my stride a bit. Lost by a few hundreds. Was pretty distraught, actually, from being, un- you know, I'd have been over the moon with winning a medal going into the champs. But yeah. you know, your performances sort of set you up and your mindset changes and you think, oh, should I win this? I became the favourite. Maybe that got to me a little bit in the 200 and, and didn't achieve what I hoped to in that race. And uh, so that kind of reset then for the 400, which was my my primary event. As I progressed through the rounds in the 400, my approach really changed to do everything possible to conserve energy. So heat, absolute, you know, you run as slow as possible in that heat to progress. Semi-final as well. I don't think I did. I don't think I actually won the semi-final. I'm trying to remember back. I did or not but again my focus was just don't get dig into that energy system if you can you know try and yeah. everything is about performing in the final so I sort of learned you know I learned learned through the championships how to perform in the final you know championship running is is very different to performing in um in a one-off meeting yeah and progressing through the rounds and, and conserving that energy so everything becomes about performing in in the final I'm, I'm guessing these are on separate days, the 400s. Yeah, so the 400s wire. So the 400s, you have that full sort of day's recovery to then reset each day, which seems to me I need that recovery to then perform again. And yeah. um, it definitely definitely worked for the 400s. I went into the final feeling fresh. I can remember the race very well. I had Mark Mutai out in lane six. I was inside him, had him in my sights. My sort of approach to the race was... Just don't go early. Just hold back, hold back. If you can be in the race with 100 metres to go as being a 400 metre runner yourself, if you haven't dipped in to the energy system too much, that, that sort of lactic energy system, and you haven't gone there and you're still feeling like you haven't gone with 100 metres to go, then you're in control of the race. And I was holding back, felt felt easy at 200, felt relaxed. It was all about you know, spinning, rolling the legs, got to 250. And that's normally the point in a 400 where you start start to feel it. Yep. And quite a key part, part of the race, and you know how painful it's going to be at that point because if you're already feeling it in your legs, that last 150 is going to be tough. Yep. I got to that stage in the race and I, I was feeling so controlled. Got to 100 to go, still feeling in control of the race, and then went to 80. And because Mark actually came up, probably edged in front by half a metre, and I always let him go. It felt like he had, he had pushed at that stage, and I hadn't. That was just sort of 120. He went, went past me. 
just went at 80. Really felt that I probably wasn't accelerating, but really felt I pushed and uh, got a little bit of a gap at that stage. And then it was a case of holding on for that last 10, 15 metres. Yeah, did a bit of a dramatic dive across the line, which is a bit embarrassing, but you do everything you can to uh, yeah. get across that line. And wasn't sure if I'd won it, to be honest. And, was that uh, close, right? It was that close, yeah. There's a Spanish guy who's, whose background is, is more 800 metre based and he came hard that last hundred, really hard. I felt him coming, and when someone's coming up on you at pace, yeah, and then sort of comes through you at the line, it's so hard to tell if you actually win the race or not. Yeah, so it was very close, very close. And dipped under fifty seconds, forty nine sixty eight, world masters champion. Yeah, so that that's been a big goal to, to achieve that time again. That's a big um, line in the sand for sort of 400 meter running to get back under 50, 50 seconds. And that had been a big goal for a few years. What had you changed from when you were a senior athlete to a, a, a master's athlete? What was the difference in terms of your track sessions, strength sessions, rest and recovery, nutrition, mindset? Let's make the comparisons there. As a master's athlete, you tend to bring a lot more knowledge to your an understanding to your sort of structure of your training. Something that... As a senior athlete, as a younger athlete, I probably didn't understand really. You know, everything was about turning up at the track, beasting a session or um, whatever Paul would set you. And, you know, I trained hard. We, we worked hard in those sessions and had complete trust in Paul structuring those sessions um, at the time. Yeah. But probably, you know, just the lifestyle influences as a senior athlete and being a university student. You know, you weren't really thinking of the year as a whole. You weren't thinking of your long-term goal necessarily. You were, you were, you were thinking of just that week or just that session or you know, just just what was going on. Just because there was so much influence around you from the social life to other sports to your studies to the actual structure of the training as a whole. Probably didn't look into it too much. You just put trust in Paul that he would set the right sessions for you and you'd do them. As a masters athlete, you know, there's so much experience that you can bring to the table that you've built up over the years and that knowledge base and the influences that are at your fingertips now as well you know you with social media and just the look into you can get a look into olympic athletes and how they structure their training and and be a fly on the wall and they they document a lot of their training it's out there for you to look at and yeah. i just absorb all that all that knowledge really it's completely changed this uh, gener social media generation and YouTube generation where you can find so much useful knowledge online and videos, uh, that, that kind of visual references and, and what other people are doing. And back in the day, you know, it was revolution if we brought a camera out and actually watched back any of our running and it just didn't exist, right? Absolutely. And you really were only, you were only influenced by that group around you. The odd book you read, you know, if you had good people around you, then you had good influence influences on your training. But but now, just the, the amount of information out there that you can you can dip into and and assess. You know, maybe it'll work for you, maybe it won't, and um, and apply to your own training. And just that understanding of of training as a whole is just brilliant to have that opportunity to absorb all that knowledge. So the kind of the shift is really from trusting Paul's process to having quite intentional sessions based on now your new, newly acquired knowledge? Yeah, so each training session now, I, I try and 
trying to think what is the goal of this training session have an actual you know is it a technical element is it a um is it an energy energy system i don't like to waste a training session so i really like to understand what am i trying to achieve like with this session because you know time is precious and and you don't want to spend <laughs> spend it doing the wrong stuff so yep i really try and think each session what, what is the goal of this what am i trying to achieve is it whether you can analyze each track session and the actual rep range and the energy systems that you're going to be using. And is, is it, is it a sensible, is it a sensible session? You know, are you going to be fatiguing yourself without actually achieving anything, which is very common, very common in athletics training. And, and there still is a mindset amongst some coaching that you have to beast yourself every session. You have to, you know, is it, I know it's quite common amongst um, other guests you've had on talking about, how often they dip into that feeling of of being completely obliterated in your training. Yeah. I can probably I can probably count on one hand the amount of times I do that a year because it's just incredibly hard to recover from it, particularly as a masters athlete. So you're pulling back from what we would say the full intensity sessions because I remember certainly you know if, if we were at Richmond Hills we couldn't walk afterwards and there was a pile of sick at the bottom. It was <laughs> you know we, we we did the session and we weren't getting up for about half an hour forty five minutes. Or if we were doing something like six three hundreds or whatever else, it was. I doubt we would have taken an, an, another step. But now it's it's almost working within your capacity, knowing very clear aim for the session, but knowing if you push it to that very strong limit, that's probably tipping the line of optimal performance and the possibility of getting injured or, or not being suitably recovered to commit to more quality training. Yeah, so it's not not necessarily pulling back from that approach to to really pushing yourself i think as a 400 meter runner i i enjoy that feeling you know i i do enjoy it it's um yeah it's something that that element of training it, it does appeal to me to you know to push the boundaries and feel like that but hand in hand with that you can't do it too often you just won't recover and um the the risk of injury is high if your your intensity just stays at that level for too long if I do have a heavy week of training, you know, I'm already thinking of, of what I'm going to be doing next next week to recover from it, whether it's treatment, whether it's an easier week. Yeah. How, how many quality track sessions are we talking then a week? And how many how many quality strength sessions would you say? What what would a typical training week, let's just say you're leading up to, let, let's let's talk about maybe that that kind of Easter block was always a key one, right? You, you've done your foundation training, you're doing your final preparation before you enter your competition phase. So kind of that that warm weather Easter Easter camp training. What would a a typical week look like during that? So the sort of overriding the overriding piece of my training is the speed element. It's something that I pay attention to throughout the year, which some athletes don't. I'm very much of the sort of mindset that um, the speed is absolutely key and it needs to be worked on throughout the year. So that that's always the sort of focus of my my week block and my yearly block of obviously more emphasis on it as you approach the competition phase. But uh, it is part of my, um, my sort of my training throughout the year, whether it's once a week or whether it's once a fortnight, you know, that, that sort of maximum velocity speed training is key. And I kind of structure my, my weekly block around that. What day do I want to run at 100%? Because you need to be ready for it if you're so going to run at that sort of intensity. So you pick an A day where you're going to put a quality session in per week of, of running, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, um, I mean, every session I'll try and I would describe as quality, 
but that sort of flat out velocity running probably once a week will be and that'll be the, the go-to session that'll be my target session for the week um not necessarily always on the clock around that session the, the nature of 400 meter running is um i think why it interests me so much is there's so many different approaches to training for it it yeah. dips into a lot of different energy systems you've got to be fast it's an aerobic element um you've got to dipping into that sort of lactic lactic training is key something that you can't do too often <laughs> because uh, recovering from that sort of lactic training is is hard and then your strength and conditioning as well so i i, I probably go to the to the gym I, I don't do as much compound lifting as we used to so our, our sessions back in the day would would consist of say the monday session i believe was clean back squat we used to bench which i yeah. <laughs> you know I, you know <laughs> Probably not, and then a, a load of load of core work, and then I think the Friday session was rather than the clean, we did a snatch, front squat, and then again we used to do something chest orientated. Yeah, there was maybe some supplementary stuff like some some rows and other bits in there, and then some core again. So not so much of that kind of compound movements, no. Not as much. I think that that phase of where we did emphasise the compound lifting, it, it set us up well with a sort of broad strength base. But, and I do, you know, it's still, I do still clean. I do still, still deadlift just to try and keep that strength at a decent level, that sort of core strength. But um, I try and be a little bit more specific with sort of my movements and my and my strength and conditioning now. Yeah. I've never been the strongest athlete, but I've got a decent base of strength in the tank. I think it's important for, for younger athletes to go through that phase of the compound movements and that, that sort of broad strength base. But once you've got that, you can be a little bit more specific in, in what you're doing. So you think you can you can build that up to a certain level, maintain that just through the, a few regular lifts, but then focus on an overarching kind of strength and condition. And I guess we're talking more along plyometrics, band work. I do a lot of that, those sort yeah. of powerful movements. So working more with kind of your body weight rather than a heavier weight. It seems to work well for me. I'm doing very much the same, Gavin. I, I do do my compound movements, deadlift and back squat are the two I do. We all enjoy our compound movements. You know, we like uh, going to the gym and uh, whacking a bit of weight on the bar. It's uh, it's good fun, isn't it? So, um, yep. And I think it's important. It's an important element of particularly sprint training. And some of you ACR guys, I've noticed, uh, you're all quite built, aren't you? It's like you're that element of, of being endurance athletes, but having that strength set as well seems to yeah. be that blend is, is quite important. Where you're very specific with what you do, it's on the same surface, it's a set distance, you know exactly what you're training for. For OCR, there are so many different elements and whilst endurance running is the foundation, the ability to, to carry, to crawl, to run on mixed terrain, to surge, because in certain races like a stadion, you need to maybe find your opportunities to actually overtake people. So. It's a wide skill set and, and getting that balance can be very tricky. And then when you are trying to get that balance, staying healthy can also be a very difficult part of the, the equation as well. And yeah, just, just listening to you, I guess, I guess for me, you know, the rest and the recovery as an athlete, as a master's athlete now is kind of the key focus for me, whether that's getting in the compression boots, the nutrition, having extra rest days, if I feel a niggle or pain coming on getting to the root of that before pushing the boat with some of my more high intensity sessions again is it i guess similar in terms of yourself a strong emphasis now on, on rest and recovery oh it's massive massive ian something that 
you probably paid more attention to as a senior athlete than I did, quite how significant that element of your training is. Nowadays, you know, from paying attention to my nutrition, something I didn't particularly do as a senior athlete, paying attention to my therapy, you know, I've got a brilliant therapist I've seen now regularly, absolutely key in, in holding me together. When you want to be putting down, you know, high intensity sessions and also how I structure my training, you know, from uh, from the easier days, it's just so vital in, in building that structure throughout the year and then building up to your, your goal race, etc. You're self-coached now, Gav? Yeah, I am. I don't have a single person who I would call my coach, but I have a lot of people who I share knowledge with and I talk to. So I'd all call them part of my um, coaching group, as it were. Yeah. Um, I've always coaching been, influence. One, a coaching influence, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um it's interesting that I still see um, some athletes and they're heavily influenced by one single person and they're their coach. And in the UK, we have something called the power of 10 and um, you can actually list your coach up there. I think it is good to have that close relationship with one person, but not at the sacrifice of other influences because, you know, one can, person can give you a hell of a lot if they've got, you know, got a lot of knowledge. They can. But you can you can just learn so much by by being open to lots of people and sharing that knowledge and listening to people. And you do get some coaches who are who, and I don't like to see it, who are quite shielded with their athletes. And you listen to me and and not to anyone else. Sometimes with great success, you know, I don't want to knock people who have that approach. But I've always liked the approach of a coaching group and to bring in people I I can give some knowledge to the athletes I coach, um, but there's areas that I'm certainly not an expert on. And I seek that out and I say, look, this guy can help you in this area. This guy can help, you know, have a listen to this podcast, have a listen, you know, try and broaden your knowledge on this. And it's, it's something that I pay a lot of attention to as a coach and with my own influences as well on my, my sort of coaching, who I listen to. And I try and keep that as broad as possible you know you've raised many good points there certainly i agree with you this you know the, the whole purpose of a, a coach is to improve people through their performance and to do that you should tap into as many means as possible and if that means drawing on the knowledge of others or letting an athlete go to move to another group because that group may offer something that's better for that athlete then then that's important and i'm similar to you i i regard myself as being self-coached, although I have a group of people that I tap into. But with that group, it's, you know, conversation that goes on in terms of they're not telling me, they're advising me, but they respect whatever decision I make. And that whole element of putting all these different pieces of the puzzle together is the bit that I find fun. You know, I like yeah. trial and error and getting it wrong and then trying to find a new way to move something forward and then getting it right. And yeah, we very much did listen to Paul. I think as sports science students, obviously there were questions there because that was a passion and, and an interest as well. But certainly it was very much more he was programming, but actually giving amazing coaching advice as well. Just just dipping more into this kind of life as a master's athlete. What's the community like? It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's something that I wasn't expecting when I started to going traveling to championships and getting involved in it I was just blown away by it to be honest um just to be around these people and 
who love athletics and have this uh, have this drive to achieve. You know, these guys are often successful away from the track as well, successful business people, and bringing sort of elements that make you a successful successful athlete to lots of other areas of their life. And to sort of spend time with these people, we just love going to championships and uh, the social aspect is brilliant everyone's there to achieve whether it's a podium whether it's a final uh, when I first started I, I my big goal was to try and make a final over the moon when I did it for the first time and for some guys you know the beauty of masters athletics as well it's in five-year age brackets when you go up an age group you know it just opens up so many more goals for you whether it's um age group bests, whether it's national records, world records, perhaps. And you suddenly, you know, you, you're into this new age bracket. And it's like being a born-again athlete when you move into a new age, age bracket and you see these guys sort of achieving all the way through. I, I want to tap into this with the goal-setting element because obviously if yeah. you're looking at making finals, your podiums, etc., these are very much performance-related goals, which to a degree are out of your control. And obviously the most impressive thing that I've heard from you today is from the ages of 35 to 42, as a master's athlete, you've managed to get quicker. But there's going to be a point where realistically that that doesn't happen. And so where does the motivation come from in terms of from the outcome goals of achieving a particular time? Is it like, right, I'm going to try and run the, exactly the same time the following year. And if you've done that, that's a tick. Or is it like... Yeah, I think about this every day. Ian. <laughs> At what point <laughs> am I going to... Uh... Am I going to get slower? I could have the perfect, perfect training phase. But when it comes to competition, I'm going to, I'm going to run slower because age is taking its effect. And the motivation at the moment of, of still hitting the same times is brilliant. I'm comfortable with the fact that um, it's going to stop. So there's some acceptance there already. So it's the challenge of keeping it going. Yeah, it is the challenge. Um it's a big challenge. You know, if I, if I can, with the COVID situation, having two two years of championships taken away is a big hit because for a Masters athlete, you think every season is so significant. How long can I hold on to this form? How long can I, you know, keep achieving these times? And each year, like I say, you can have the perfect approach with training, but you're going at some point, you're going to get slower. There's certain Masters athletes that provide a lot of encouragement there's a there's a masters athlete called jason carty he's an absolute legend of masters athletics this guy is age 50 and he's running 11-0 for 100 meters you know he's wow. a world champion and he's actually he's quite a late developer in athletics and has pretty much held his form all the way through his 40s and was running masters pbs late into his 40s so i'm holding on to people like that who have been doing it well into their 40s and, and achieving incredible times and, and haven't started going down that curve significantly yet. So uh, I'm holding on to that, that. I can keep holding it together for a few more years. And then there's obviously um, the motivation. I'm a couple of years off the 45 age group okay. and that opens up. So the next bracket's know, there again to continue. The next bracket. And I do put my emphasis on championships, but you know the thoughts of achieving a national record a big even a world record would be a goal of mine and what, um, what is the world record for over 45 for 400 meters i was i should have looked this up before we started chatting in because i knew you were going to ask me this um so on the on the m40 um record so the indoor world record world record is 48 9 oh, wow. 9 1 i think 0.7 is a lot 
but I actually feel I'm in better shape now than when I ran 48.6 two years ago. So that was one of my goals this winter to to have that in my targets. Yep. It's, it's a stretch goal, but, uh, you know, world records are going to be stretch goals, aren't they? So um, when we're talking about like stretch goals, that's that's the whole point, isn't it? I, I always say to, yeah. you know, this this balance between, you know, being realistic, but then setting the bar high as well. And our first episode of this this new series was on on goal setting. And be ambitious. Go out there and set yourself a massive goal because why not? And 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 certainly, I yeah, that would be a stretch. You know, it's a challenge. But then when you look back on your career, oh, you, you know, great, who would have yeah. you know your world masters champion? And maybe five years before that, if if you'd have stated that as your goal, a lot of people would be like, it's not going to be able to do that. Uh, coming back into the sport so late, but yeah, you did. With the athletes now that you're you're coaching as well. What are kind of your, your training principles with these younger athletes? Is it very much are you guiding them now based on a lot of the training you're doing as a master's athlete or do you have a different approach? So the influence I have over the athletes I sort of work with. So one thing that frustrates me is the amount of time you can spend with them. You know, my time is precious. They're, a lot of them are at school or university and how much time you can spend with these athletes I mean, I'd love to give more and more time to them and uh, and influence them as much as possible. I hope that I am setting them up to, to reach their potential in the sport. We get together probably at least twice a week for sessions. A big thing for me is, uh, and what was certainly significant for my training as I developed as an athlete, was the performance-based strength and conditioning side of things. So I'm trying to set them on the right path with that sort of training as well. It is it is difficult to spend that amount of time with them because they really need eyes on them, you know, as they're doing their sessions and their strength and conditioning sessions. And and that's where I'd like to bring someone else into the coaching setup to, to spend more time with them. So important for them. Yep. Because I missed out on that development. I missed out. I didn't really get that until age 19, 20, when I started spending time with Paul. And um, and it's quite late in the day to be learning that sort of element of training, really. Yeah, I mean, sure. I, I ran on the track and I did circuit training when I was yeah. well, pretty much all the way from age 12 up until the age of 18, 19, you know, yeah. a little bit of lifting and probably the wrong sort of lifting when I was going in the gym, you know, more sort of bodybuilder based because that was what the majority of people did in the gym. So um, I'm trying to bring that as much as possible into their training. With Coach Gavin now, if you went back in time 20 years and Paul Ireland wasn't around and you were coaching young 19 year old Gavin what advice would you have given him around the coaching I think the sessions we do, we were doing were solid you know that Agreed. that was great it was what we needed to be doing to excel a lot of us had massive improvement curves during that period as a senior athlete so we were doing a hell of a lot of things right yeah agreed lifestyle choices you know the nature of being a student at uni would I change it probably not Perhaps some decisions, you know, the the social element, the um, the nutritional side of things. You didn't really think of those things as a senior athlete, and and now you put so much emphasis on them as a as a masters athlete. You think, crikey, if I had uh, paid a little bit more attention to that as a senior athlete. But there's all sorts of reasons why you couldn't do it. You're a lot more erratic with your planning as a student. For me, with my living arrangements, with um, with my working arrangements, with my studying, with your social life as a student, um, trying to hold all those things together and enjoy that period of your life whilst also trying to excel as a um, as an athlete is certainly a challenge. 
probably something that maybe I could have um, structured better as a senior athlete to achieve my potential then. Would I change it a lot? Probably not. Would I have changed some elements? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. If you were going to try and persuade me to come back to the, the Masters scene, obviously I've gone completely the opposite way. You've you've kept to the short stuff. I've gone on this uh, endurance journey, which I would say is definitely not my natural skill set. I'd say my, my talents definitely lie in, in the short events. Would it be worth me coming back? Do you think now I've gone down this endurance route, it's going to be difficult for me to uh, to get my speed back to try and challenge yourself over 400 metres? Or, or do you think I could make a comeback? It's not too late for me. Are you thinking about it, Ian? Are you considering um, that? I'd run, a, I'd run an eight on the track for sure. Yeah. I'd known, I, so it looks like you're, you're loving life with, with what you're doing as an athlete. Sorry, was the question on whether I think you could... Well, I think with you're going with the answer level? is because I seem happy you just say carry on with the journey i'm on right is that where you're going yes it, it would interest me to see what sort of level you could get back to if you devoted two three years back to track running and sprint running it, it would really interest me because obviously we're we're quite similar athletes talent wise we run very similar times yep. senior athletes you've gone a different path with your sort of training to what i've done could you get back to it and could you get back to to those sort of um sprint times that it's that i'm running now you know could yeah. you get back to that level would it would it be achievable for you i don't know i think i came back to the sport almost at the point of no return at that age. if i'd left it a few more years yeah it would have been incredibly hard to to get my sprinting legs back because um i just got back at that stage where you could um you could start. You 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 could do quality track sessions, and uh, you just about grease the groove at the right time to make sure it hadn't stiffened possibly, up completely, right? Possibly, possibly. The thought of uh, yeah, I don't know. Does it appeal to you? The thought of doing sort of flat out split four hundreds and things like that, and uh, that sort of type of training. The answer to that is s- certain sessions, yes, like yeah. eight two hundreds. Certainly, that kind of session was my favourite. I loved it. And I still feel I could actually crack out some some fast twos in that particular realm of the, of the eight twos off two minutes because we do four two hundreds at the end of my session. So I have a an indication of yeah. where my speed is over kind of two hundred meters. I think for me, athletics was my passion when I was nineteen, twenty, twenty one, but OCR has just given me this this high and. That is where oh, my, my focus is is, is, is going to be now. But certainly as I've got older, I find a lot more joy in watching other people perform to the best of their ability. I, I guess I've always had that as a teacher, but certainly now seeing yourself and the levels of enjoyment you're getting from the sport, a sport I, I love, is, is amazing to see. And what I was pleased to hear from you is, is how good the community is because I see the end of the races and regardless of the nationalities and, you know, where people are from, it, it's a coming together. It's a celebration of sport. Don't get me wrong. I've, our, our times, people were pretty friendly in the athletic circles, but... It was, it was a different mindset then, though, wasn't it? It really was. Certainly there were times when you'd finish a, a, a race and, and, you know, the sport was was serious and certain people wouldn't talk to other people and that doesn't seem to be the vibe at the masters athletics and you know as much as 
I am a competitor and I, and I love sport. There's, there's, there's another side where, you know, <laughs> that social element yeah. and, and enjoying that, those, those circles and appreciating other people's performances and, and, and so forth, right? Absolutely, Ian. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong, we are competitive. You know, we're, when, we, when we're on the track and we're lining up, we want to perform to our best and we want to compete and we want to win medals. But that social aspect, to be honest, I, I didn't. I didn't see myself being in athletics at age 40, 43. No way. Um, but having that first experience of it as a master's athlete, when I was um, went to my first champs, just being around those sort of guys, I thought, I, I, I love this. I want more of it. And, yeah. um, you know, you, you get to travel to places that you wouldn't necessarily uh, choose to travel to, see great cities, um, spend time with, with people who have similar interests to you. You get to compete. I mean, get the opportunity to to still still compete and get that that thrill of competition is I don't you know when you, you see it not really getting diluted yeah. at the top end age groups either you know these guys age age seventy eighty even people in their nineties lighted up and they want to win you know they've got that 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 young competitive spirit still in them and it's it's just a beautiful thing to see and it keeps you young and it keeps you uh, yeah keeps you loving life really so just to sort of return to when we were competing as senior athletes and um and how it's different when we were competing sort of the the big sprinter on the scene was morris green you know his approach to to sprinting he was an aggressive sprinter you know he he wanted to you saw him on the start line and um it looked like he wanted to rip the other competitors to shreds you know he'd be pacing around and that, that really sort of aggressive approach and he was the best sprinter in the world at the time world record out there and uh, someone who you would look to as as being the pinnacle of the sport. And uh, I think a lot of us sort of brought that aggressive nature to our competing at the time. Yeah. Did it work for me? I, I don't think it's really in my nature to to be that sort of aggressive character on the track. Um, I, I perform better when I'm smiling and enjoying myself. And um, and it's becoming a more common trait in athletes in, in sort of modern sports is – is smile and enjoy yourself. You'll perform better. You don't need to go out there and heap this pressure on you and be something that you're not. You know, be a. I think obviously Usain Bolt brought that to the table more than anyone else. I think yep. um, that approach to sprinting. You know, maybe it's easier when you have that much talent, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting to see that. So, Gavin, we're obviously both in a very similar position where we don't have kids. And do you think that's quite a key factor in terms of being able to maintain your athletic performance to such a high level all these years? Yeah, I do. So it is, I, I can't lie, it's been a significant factor in me performing well for the last um, five, six years as a master's athlete is not having the pressure of, of kids on my time. Having said that, there's lots of master's athletes who are performing brilliantly, who have young kids and make it work for them and still find the time to train and travel and do the championships and excel in their performances. So it's, it's not, it's not the be all and end all, but I think it is significant for me. It's something that might be coming to the table fairly soon in my life, whether it will have a negative impact on my performance, we will wait and see. I think I've got quite a strong uh, network around me of support. So Hopefully, hopefully, I, I would hate to think it would impact negatively on on my training and my performance. But uh, you have to be realistic. You know, when uh, children come to the table, then they they're a huge part of your life, and probably 
rightly so the priority in your life so um your your priorities change and your emphasis goes to them but uh hopefully you know i can embrace both things and uh, continue continue performing as a masters athlete as well sure you can gavin with um with with the masters athletes out there for those that are, are looking to unlock their athletic potential if you could just give one advice to masters athletes in general what what, what would be your number one piece of advice yeah, I've given this a little bit of a thought as uh, I knew it'd be sort of one of the questions that you had asked me on if I could single out something. And um, I know a lot of your guests have highlighted the importance of of enjoying your training and embracing your your sort of uh, your passion for the sport. And if you enjoy it, you will excel, which is brilliant and probably is my number one. But I'm going to go down a slightly different route. For me, it's the consistency of regular training. There's a one of my favourite films. I don't know if you've seen it. Any given Sunday. Watched it last film. week. <laughs> <laughs> Myself and Sharon watched it last week, mate. Yeah, it's amazing. It's my favourite film of all time. Yeah, it's a belter. Absolute belter. There's a great speech in there. Uh, Al Pacino, the Game of Inches speech, where he says about fighting for every every inch and how it's those inches all added together make the difference between sort of winning and losing. And I do apply that sort of uh, that thinking to my training. Uh, it's one of my favourite films. And I think about that sort of approach in my daily decisions to try and achieve consistency each day. Because I think those little decisions on your diet, on your nutrition, on your training, all those little decisions will make the difference when you line up on, on the start line and feel like I'm in the best place possible. I've done everything possible to perform at my best and if you do that to be honest it doesn't really matter if you win or lose if you're doing yourself justice and performing to the best of your ability and um if you return to sort of when i won the world championship gold in 2018 i also ran sub 50 something that i hadn't done since i think age 22 so 20 year gap in that time <laughs> between <laughs> running uh sub 50 again and that's a massive goal for me that sense of achievement from achieving that if i had come fourth in the race and run that time i would have been over the moon because i felt at the time that was the peak of you know what i could achieve performance wise so yeah so that that put doing everything possible with your, your consistent approach to your life decisions i suppose is is what is the key bit of advice i'd give i like that just going to finish it with some really quick Fire questions. Um, which current track spike are you using? Adidas, man. So I do flip between Adidas and and Nikes. Always been more of an Adidas man. The actual the world champ winning spike was a Nike, which was uh, the Nike Superfly Three, I think. Okay. Lovely four hundred meters spike. Actually, it's not quite as aggressive as a lot of the Adidas sprint spikes. So it kind of suits a more uh, smooth uh, sort of running running stride in the four hundred meters, whereas the sort of really aggressive sprint spikes can be a little bit too much for the 400. Then Adidas have actually switched their Rio spikes when they uh, brought out a range for the Rio Olympics, a lovely range of uh, sort of 400 meter spikes and dipping in with a few Nikes as well. So Adidas oh, and so switching out. And this a New Balance as well. I'm really big fan of New Balance as well. They're, they're uh, what I, I call, uh, you know, they're a really core running brand. Um, they produce brilliant, you know, brilliant quality um, athletics spikes and, you know, sort of racing shoes. So big fan of New Balance as well. Cool. What's your favourite session, Gav? So a key session for me for 400 metres 
yep. is is the split 400. So this is uh, a key benchmark session for me to see what sort of race shape I'm in approaching the season. So that is basically you run 200 meters close to flat out, not absolutely blitzed. Some people will run it absolutely flat out, but I will run it sort of halfway between my first half of the 400 meter race pace and halfway between my flat out 200 meter pace. So maybe if I'm hitting around sort of 23.0, 23.2 for that 200, then you have a minute's rest and then you hit another 200. It's a really good indicator of where you are with your 400 meter training. I will usually try and hit that in those combined times when you add the 200 meter times together. If I'm hitting sort of half a second faster than what my goal time is for the season, then I know I'm in a good place. So yeah, that's, a, that's a really good uh, key session for me and a good indicator of uh, what sort of shape I'm in. Cool. What's your most feared session? Part of being a 400 meter runner, I think, is is enjoying those those lactic sessions. Definitely type two fun. You don't necessarily enjoy it at the time. That half an hour, oh, when you uh, reflect on it and you recover from it and it's in the bank, it's a nice feeling. Um, and those lactic sessions uh, is sort of repeatedly dipping in that 35 second, 40 second zone um, of maximum exertion. So maybe 300s, 350s, doing a 300, close to flat out, having a short recovery, then trying to hit a 150 maybe. Um, so trying to sprint under fatigue is hard. Not much fun at the time, and but there is an element of enjoyment that comes with that sort of training session as well. So anything with a bit of a lactate burn to it? Yeah, I'll be, I'll, you have to be some sort of a masochist to say you you absolutely thrive on them sessions, but you know you know they're part part of the training, part of the training that you need to be doing as a 400 meter runner. Absolutely. How about pre-training fuel? Is there any kind of pre-workout you take, or any any fuel you put in the system before each workout? Yeah, so nutrition-wise, I've I put quite a lot of focus on that. It's just really what I've learned works for me over the years. I've got quite heavily into um, into sort of chia seeds, flax seeds before session. I find that gives me a really good sort of stable energy base uh, for a long duration as well. You don't spike like you do with sort of caffeine and things like that. Have you, have you had cheer charge, Gav? I haven't actually. No, no. So for like a cheer flapjack. Right, yeah, so flapjacks, sounds good. So all my nutrition, I put more of my emphasis on trying to get everything that I need rather than trying to eliminate all the things that are deemed not necessarily uh, the best things to be eating. So, you know, I enjoy eating well. So supplement-wise, I I put uh, things like krill oil, important for... uh, Keeping tendons and uh, particularly for masters athletes, it's, it, that's basically like a heavy duty um, sort of omega-3 supplement. Zinc magnesium is great for your sleep. Take a um, cherry active most nights just to help with my sleep and help with recovery, help with cortisol levels, things like that that um, go a long way to helping sort of my recovery from sessions. Cool. And, and then straight after training, what's your post-training fuel? What's your post-training go-to food? I treat myself once a week. I love those, um, say, quite a big... If I've got a hard session planned, then uh, I usually treat myself an hour or so afterward. To, uh, I enjoy a full English breakfast. So uh, yeah. that's a little treat, treat for me each week. Nutrition-wise, you know, I, you know, it, it's nothing revolutionary. I, I, like I say, I don't put massive emphasis on my nutrition 
omelets, you know, those sort of things are common things for me. Um, getting a lot of seeds in there, a lot of nuts, um, those sort of things. I snack a lot throughout the day, those sort of um, those sort of foods. So it's basically eliminating processed foods, just, just trying to get in a good variety and mixture of foods, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, I would say I, yeah, processed foods don't really feature in my diet at all. So, cool. Okay, got a final question for you. Yeah. Would you trade in your Masters World Gold for a senior Great Britain cap? That's going to take a bit of thinking about an answer to that. Um, uh, I'm going to say no, Ian. I'm going to say no. Okay. If you're putting it just uh, obviously, it was a big dream of mine as a as a young sportsman to not necessarily just in athletics to to reach a professional standard at a sport and do it as a career. It didn't happen. Got close, you know, semi-professional rugby. I possibly was on the path with cricket as well. I played a decent level of cricket. Um, it didn't happen. I'm comfortable with that. I wouldn't want to change my enjoyment of being a master's athlete and what it's bringing to my life now just for that one hit of of a senior international vest. Um, you know, if, if that had progressed on to, you know, a deeper senior career in athletics, maybe, maybe I would uh, change my answer to that question. But if it was just a one-off international vest, then, uh, then no. I sometimes think with the, with the master's gold, it's very much about grit, training, consistency, like real tough skills and qualities that everyone can acquire, but are, are tough for everybody to implement, where sometimes that senior GB vest isn't about those skills. It's down to more that natural ability that, that, you, that you're given. And there's, we know numbers of, a number of athletes that have, have got those senior GB vests, maybe haven't put in the work, but because they just had a natural talent they got there so i like the fact that you you've stuck with the master's gold there because uh, <laughs> i think it's uh, an amazing achievement and yeah absolutely brilliant so spent more time than possibly could have hoped for there gavin so really appreciate you coming on the pod always a pleasure catching up as well with yourself mate and um yeah good to, to reminisce a little bit during that episode as well thanks so much for coming on thanks so much ian um i don't often reflect back on things so this has been a great opportunity to sort of reflect and uh, it's a good time at the start of the year to, to do that sort of process so thanks so much for the invitation really enjoyed it awesome mate take care and that my friends is unlocking athletic potential we hope you've enjoyed this episode and taken something away with you to help you perfect your craft